May the accomplished fact of the Reformation, which we commemorate on this day, fill you with confidence that our heavenly... Dear fellow Christians, one of our members celebrated an historic 90th birthday yesterday. We know that that was his birthday only because we were told that it was. None of us was there to witness the original event, I assume. It's interesting, by the way, isn't it, how children, once you get past a certain age, just lump you all together with the same all of history that came before. No doubt, therefore, in their minds, this individual knew Abraham Lincoln. Interestingly enough, the individual himself, though he was there at the event, we assume, at the original event, would only know that that was his birthday because he was later told. His memory's still sharp, but not that sharp. In fact, he would have no idea what he looked like throughout his childhood had not a record of that been preserved and delivered to us so that we can look back and say, oh, that's what, and so that he could look back and say, oh, that's what I looked like. You know, the same thing holds true for every single one of us. Not one of us could know some of the most basic information about ourselves unless that had been told to us by others or written down and preserved and delivered to us. There are many, for example, who get along just fine without knowing the actual date of their birth, especially in certain areas of our world. They don't know. It doesn't matter. Understanding this sort of thing to be true in our own personal lives we begin to get a sense of just how much of what we know today depends on what we have been told, and more particularly, what has been written down and delivered to us. Think about it. How much of this world's information and knowledge is just revealed to us? We've never looked under a microscope and examined things. We've never studied light or electricity in depth. We've never done all of these things. We believe that these things are so because we are told or we read about these things in a book. And again, while much of this information is not all that necessary, like the date of our birth, some of it is. Some of it is eternally necessary. This is, in fact, how all of this relates to the event that we celebrate on this day, the Reformation. It informs us this fact that we have to have things revealed to us. It informs us why it was so important that God reformed the church of that day, while he changed the course of the church of that day, together with why it is fitting and right, crucial, that we not only continue to commemorate the event, but we come to realize and appreciate what God has given us, what he restored to us. Now, the three pillars of the Reformation, I'm sure you could all answer, faith alone, scripture alone, grace alone. 
But this morning we focus on one in particular, Scripture, or the Word of God alone. And we do that in large part because, interestingly enough, though they are critically important, the other two pillars of the Reformation would have no value, no meaning to us, without the word formation sat, would have no significance without the word of God. The text that will guide our study, part of that very word of God, is found in Paul's letter to the Romans, the third chapter, beginning with the 19th verse. And incidentally, this section is chosen on Reformation Sunday because Luther said, it was through this scripture that he himself came to understand the truth of the gospel, contrary to what he had been taught his whole life, how he had to earn his salvation, earn payment by his good works for his own sin. Through this reading, he came to understand that that payment was made by Christ alone. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfactory payment, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is God's word. A part of the very thing on which we focus this morning. We not only thank our God for giving us these words, but for the gift of understanding that he has also created in us through these words, that our God would continue to grant us understanding through the study of these words this morning. So we pray, sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. It's interesting that a big part of the Christian faith is not just thinking about learning one that you will one day, what you will one day receive. 
as though the Christian faith is, is the faith that talks to people to tell them to be just miserable but satisfied with your misery and don't really enjoy yourself and don't be happy and then someday it'll all be yours. You'll have all kinds of great things. You've seen in our day where churches have gone overboard and say, no, no, it's actually about this earth. If you become a Christian, you can claim from God whatever you want and you can be healthy, wealthy, wise, happy on this earth and have heaven too. Christianity is more about coming to learn and appreciate what it is that you have right now. Now understand, this isn't about material things. It's about spiritual things. But spiritual things that, not that you'll have someday, just wait for it. It's things that you have right now. You will not one day, for example, receive saving faith. You have it right now. And what that means is that you will not one day or only periodically receive the forgiveness of sins. You have it full and complete right now. Because faith is credited, God's word tells us, as righteousness. In other words, when faith is present in your heart, you stand forgiven every moment of every day in God's sight. That's not something that you'll get someday. You have it right now. Eternal life itself is not something that you will one day receive. Lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, physically, this body may have to pass through death, unless Jesus returns before that day. But that spirit life that's in you never dies. That thing that God, the Holy Spirit, has brought to life within you just continues through physical death on into eternity. These are all gifts that we have right now. Well, clearly there are good things that lie in the future. Heaven, obviously. The cessation of anything evil or bad or frustrating. All fatigue, gone, only good, always. But so much is ours right now. Another gift that you right now possess is the ability that God gave you to understand the truth and discern between truth and error. And yet do you realize that not one of these gifts would be ours, would be of value to us, could be appreciated by us, if not for that one great gift that God gave us in connection with his word. Not one. Had he never told us about these things, we would never know that they're ours. Had he never told us about the Christian faith, it could never be ours. He brought us to faith through that word. Had that word never been peace with God, None of this would be ours if you simply remove that word of God because everything that we know definitively about our God did not come to us directly from heaven as though we just thought or prayed and we came to know it. We can know certain things about our God from his creation. He must be wise, powerful, eternal. He began all things. He must be generous and loving because he made this world so beautiful. 
not just in black and white, but color, sounds, so many gifts, different tastes that he gave us. He's a great, powerful God, but we could know nothing of his plan for salvation were it not for that word of God. So on this Reformation Day, when we commemorate the three pillars of the Reformation, we focus especially on that one sola scriptura, scripture alone, the word of God alone. It sounds kind of obvious, but what in your life would have been possible had your mother decided to terminate, murder you in her womb? Nothing. Obviously. Nothing at all. If not for Scripture alone, none of these things would be ours. So let's look first at how this is true. Now, the second pillar, we're using the word alone as the first. The second pillar, or foundation of the Reformation, is grace alone. God's grace is defined by us, because it's defined that way in God's word, as his undeserved love for sinners. Now, the temptation is to focus on the word love, but focus instead on the word undeserved, undeserved love, because that's the key. Most in the world could, that believe that there's some sort of a God could say, well, his grace is his love for us. But until you add that word undeserved, there's the temptation to believe that we are somehow worthy or deserving of that love of our God. Of course he must love us. Just as an earthly parent must love a child. Well, here's the thing about that. I'm guessing that every single parent can think back to a time when you didn't really like your kids so much. Now you probably say, yeah, but I always loved my child, but yeah, there were times when I didn't like them all that much. And that's when those children were being especially rebellious, disrespectful, unruly, frustrating, they were just having a bad day. I remember my mom looking at me and in one moment of candor saying, you know what, right now I don't like you all that much therapy got me past it, but <laughs> but you know what we also learn? That if that child remains nothing but hateful, rebellious, disrespectful, they actually can become unlovable to their parents. You've heard this, it's tragic, but it happens. Parents hang on, hang on, and as the child go, grows and becomes an adult, and they do nothing but treat their parents hatefully, eventually, even that love, although there's still a parent-child connection, that love eventually dies because that individual is just unlovable. We were absolutely, in every way, always and only unlovable to him. Now you think, what could ever make a child or a parent stop loving their own child? Well, if they never do anything lovable, that's what can make it happen. So when our relationship with our God, before he brought us to faith, was always and only rebellion, always and only disrespect, blasphemy, 
We were by nature, God's word tells us, enemies of God. We weren't just neutral, we were enemies. We were wrathful toward him. And God loved us. That's the undeserved love of God, his grace. And it's one of the key elements, obviously, of the entire Christian faith, that we did in no way earn or deserve God's love. In fact, he didn't start loving us when we started doing good after we were brought to faith and thanking him for the faith he's created in us. He loved us from the foundation of the world. Before we were even born, he loved us. Obviously, then, undeserved, because we'd done nothing to deserve it. So given what we know, then, about this phenomenal thing called grace, how could we ever say that it is of no value to us? It means nothing to us apart from the Word. Because you couldn't know it existed. You could know nothing about this attribute of our God. You would assume, as everyone would, that my bad things incur God's wrath. That because I've been so sinful and rebellious, He probably, almost certainly, couldn't love me. Take away God's word, and we could know nothing of His undeserved love for us. The second, or the third pillar, rather, of the Reformation, we know as faith alone. All true Christians believe that we are saved by God's grace through faith. The Reformation itself was about combating the false teaching that we are saved by what we do, not faith. Faith doesn't do. Faith accepts from God a sin payment that Christ made. And the error of the day was that you must do something to pay for your sin. You have a sin, you have to have a good work that cancels that debt. Faith, we know, is believing not just that Jesus existed. Believing in Jesus doesn't even mean he came to earth to, gave, to provide an example on how we must earn. Faith in Jesus says, I've got nothing. Heavenly Father, I've got nothing to pay for even one of my sins, but I believe Jesus made that payment in my stead as my substitute. That's what we come to know now as faith, that we trust in the goodness of another to have provided the payment for our sins. That's what we mean by faith in Jesus. And in the Reformation, Luther added the word alone, faith alone, because it isn't faith and good works, only faith. So believing this, how can we again say that this faith would be nothing to us, would have no relevance or meaning apart from the word of God? The answer is that faith in and of itself does not save. Hear that again. Faith in and of itself does not save. Faith in Jesus Christ saves. It's a critical difference. True faith always has 
an object. It attaches itself. True and real faith attaches itself to a sure and certain promise. And we could know no sure and certain promises had they not been revealed to us in God's Word. Some might argue that the world has no faith. Well, let's say, they have buckets of the stuff. But they have no sure, solid point of reference, something they can grasp and say, yes, I have faith in this, and have any confidence that it will be so. So you, you, you learn in, in, in talking to friends and others, they have faith in themselves. Wow. Talk about a recipe for disaster. Do you have faith in yourself? <laughs> I don't. I don't trust myself any further than I can throw myself, and that's not very far. They have faith in humanity. They have faith in science. You've heard a lot about science lately. Is that something in which you want to base your faith? Again, the problem is, unless you have something sure and certain to latch onto, faith is just a wisp. Faith is simple desire or hope, as the world understands hope. Faith is just the product of our desires or our fears or our emotions. I have faith because I want it to be true. I think every single Hollywood movie now, when there's a bad thing that happens, must have another character that looks earnestly in the face of the injured person or the person in trouble and say, it will be okay. It's all going to be fine. Based on what? Based on faith in your desire, your emotion? Because you can't know that. In fact, I think I'm probably going to die right now. We can't have those solid anchor points in our lives to which faith attaches without the Word of God. Because in that Word, we hear of His promises. In that Word of God, and in that Word of God alone, is where we find His promise that I will be with you to the end of the age. I will hear you when you pray. Ask, and it will be given you. We can have faith in that because God promised it. In fact, we can only have faith in what God promises because only God can order the things of this life to make His promises come true. Those of you who are parents, again, know that you'd better not start promising things to your kids because you can't control what's going to happen and they will hold you to it. I thought you said we were going to the park. Yes, but a tornado is going through the park right now. But you promised. But God can promise because God knows and God can control. It's God then that promised, seek first the kingdom of God and my righteousness and I will provide everything else that you need. You can have faith in that. You can trust that because God said it. Not so with man. All of this tells us why this word of God is our single greatest earthly possession. Without it, we don't know our God. We don't know his promises. We don't know the path to salvation. We're left to our own devices, as is everyone who denies that word of God as God's word. Then they're trusting themselves. They're trusting someone else. They're trusting intuition or, 
or they're just rolling the dice that on Judgment Day, if there is a God, I'll be good enough for him to accept me into his heaven. You know what, and even that word of God, it's interesting how all of these things are interconnected, aren't they? Because just as grace and faith would have no relevance to us without the word that teaches us about them, so also the word itself is what gives us faith. So faith without the word is nothing. The word without faith is nothing. Because many people can read, for example, the words of our text, these beautiful, clear, precise words, and just not get it. So they have the word, and yet they don't have it. Our text is simply magnificent. But why does some read it and again don't get it? Paul explained to the church in Corinth in chapter 1 Corinthians 2, and we're using here the God's Word to the Nation translation, a person who isn't spiritual doesn't accept the teachings of God's Spirit. He thinks they're nonsense. He can't understand them because a person must be spiritual to evaluate them. So God gave us the word, he returned the word to us because it was for a long time locked away by the church who didn't trust simple folk to be able to read and understand it. He returned that word to us and it's only through that word that we can be given faith and then faith is the thing that accepts that word as true. So our text begins with that, that simple, basic, clear, precise truth about the law, first of all, because that's where we have to start. The law is the thing that, what, saves us or condemns us? Here's what God says about it. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So that every mouth stop thing is, if you think you're doing pretty good, here's the law. How are you doing? Because here we're told what we must never do. Here we must, we're told what we must always do. Now you tell me how you're measuring up to God's perfect holy law. And in Paul's wording here, it's the law makes us shut our mouths. To give up on this pretense that we're somehow earning our way to God's perfection in heaven. Because the law just reveals to us that we're sinful. He goes on, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. You remember, justify means to be declared not, not guilty. So by trying to earn your way through the works of the law, no human being standing before God on judgment day will be declared to be innocent. You can't do it since through the law comes only the knowledge of sin. The law always condemns. By demanding perfect obedience, every mouth is closed. So in this section, Paul has just dealt with the law as a means to gain God's love and favor and the entrance to heaven. 
all the law does is shows you that you can't make it on your own. In God's divine system of justice, we either have to bring to judgment day perfection, or if we have even one sin, since we can't make a payment, we have to have an outside payment. We have to outsource that. Goodness needed to pay for our sins has to come from something outside of ourselves. And so our text goes on to identify that outsourced goodness that we need. Since through the law comes only the knowledge of sin, our text talks about a righteousness of God. And that of there is better translated from. God is the source of that righteousness. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, and that terrible word, propitiation. I've never heard anyone use it in a sentence outside of this setting. It's a satisfactory payment, who God put forth, whom God put forth as a satisfactory payment for sin by his blood to be received by faith. The direction is just turned completely around. On the one hand, up to Luther, the church had been teaching people that they must supply the goodness on their own. And that sounds normal, natural, right? That's how things are done. If you want to buy something, you have to pay for it. If you want money, you have to work. You do, you gain. But you notice how Paul here always spoke of it as a gift, something given to us, something provided for us by God himself in Christ. And that's the difference. True Christianity doesn't look at what I must do. It looks for its comfort to what Christ has done on the cross for me. He paid my sin debt. God put him forward as a sin payment by his blood to be received by. It becomes my possession by that faith that God creates in my heart. A gift. This is the beating heart of the Christian faith. This is it. It's summarized here as clearly as anywhere. Marvel at the precision here of the this and not that approach. Because he didn't just say this is it. He said it's not this, it's this. It is a gift, an inheritance, not wages earned. It is something that God provided, not something you provided, which is why all boasting is excluded. That's looking at it from yet another angle. If there were anything that we did to help along, to supply, then there would be bragging rights. Well, at least I this. And the Holy Spirit's treatment of that, where is it? Where can you find it in any of this? It's excluded. Because every bit of forgiveness and righteousness that you have is a gift from God. God accomplished our rescue. That's why. On this day, we thank our God in particular for his word. How that is supposed to be for us our most precious earthly possession, by far. Because there is the source of so many things that we desperately need that we can't do without. This information that we could know no other way about our God and about the path to salvation, which is alone through faith in him faith alone. There we learn about his love for us 
And it was his love for us that caused him to do what was necessary for our salvation. Grace alone. Here we learn about and gain that power that we need to be sustained in this saving faith until we're gone. It's all in that word and only in that word of God. You see how God is so jealous about not adding to, taking away from, changing this word? Because it's perfect the way it is. You mess with it. You change it. You leave things out or put things in, and it's no longer perfect. It's no longer my masterpiece. This is what God returned to us at the Reformation. His holy, precious, perfect, powerful truth. God grant to each one of us every day of our lives a renewed appreciation of, a reverence for, and a passionate, fierce love of His Word, our Bibles. God's Word is truth. God's Word is life. Amen.